something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm super excited. I'm back in New York City here at Via Corota, my favorite Italian restaurant in New York on Grove Street. If you are ever in New York, please, 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 you must check this place out. It's just delicious. Hi. Hi. You look amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Have you been here before? I haven't. Today is really special because we are having lunch with a woman who doesn't usually make time to be away from her desk at lunch. That is true. I'm more of a, a breakfast person. She's an icon. She's a big deal to me in my life, to the city. I think she is fundamental in the fabric of New York and um, globally. We're having lunch with Anna Winton. So grab a cocktail, or if this is a working lunch for you, maybe a coffee. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Anna took time out of her schedule for us on a brisk afternoon last October. I'm Bruce Bozzi, and this is my podcast, Table for Two. Today, everybody, we're having lunch with Dame Anna Winter, who doesn't usually make time for lunch, I think, outside of your desk. Is that true? I find that lunch tends to interrupt the day. And, and to be completely honest, since we moved to the World Trade Center, uh, it's sort of an isolating neighborhood <laughs> anyway. And, and, and so leaving the building seems complicated and difficult so I, I tend to when I get there I tend to stay it is a little remote it's it's remote yeah. particularly since COVID it, it's become quite well not desolate but empty yeah. but I, I'm so lucky in my office because I have this extraordinary view not only all over Manhattan but onto the memorial and it's actually I, I love being actually physically in my office because it's such a remarkable reminder of the resilience of, of people, yeah. I think. So, yeah. so I, I'm taking you out of your day. What does the day look like today for you? Well, I get up early, uh, five-ish, okay. and I usually go to my trainer. Okay. And that has become a, quite a bizarre walk because I, I walk there and he's on 12th Street. And now that it's dark, I, I walk yes. through or around Washington Square wow. Park, which is, you know, interesting. 
and interesting. You never quite know what you're you're going to see. So I, I spend an hour with with Daniel, who's amazing, and then usually I run back, and then my day kicks in sometimes with phone calls to the many territories that Condonast operates in, or I just go straight to the office, or sometimes I'll have a breakfast meeting. Uh, uh, with people that are in from out of town. I'm not someone who likes a long meeting. I like right. to have a reason for the breakfast not, or the lunch, uh, not, nothing that's so social. And uh, then I work through the day, many meetings with all the different brilliant editors that I have the good fortune to work with at Condé Nast or some members of uh, the ELT at Condé Nast or outside appointments occasionally or meetings with the Met. You know, I try and do things that a part of the reason that one lives in New York because New York has so so much to offer right. and a theater as you know we share that in common yes we do and we're going to talk about that yeah. we're going to talk about your love of theater and yeah. um, so I can't get over that you walk at five in the morning to the gym and yeah. I mean so you just you, you get up and you go yes um yes. first of all you look amazing thank you thank you uh, very good lighting it's, it's good lighting you're <laughs> in like a red floral that dress is beautiful. Thank you. It's it's a, it's a it's a Marnie dress by Francesco Rizzo. I I love what he's doing on Marnie. I think it's so creative and fun. And he had an amazing show during New York Fashion Week, which is one of the best New York Fashion Weeks that we've had in a long time. Because I think that we were sort of fully open since okay. COVID, and a lot of uh, outside people came, including uh, the wonderful Kim Jones from Fendi. They did a partnership collaboration with. The great Mark Jacobs, which yes. was I was told was built around the baguette, uh, which seemed to involve cameos from Sarah Jessica Parker and <laughs> Linda Evangelista. But Francesco, who's an amazing Italian designer that was uh, Mutual Prada's right hand for a long time, and I think was tapped by Renzo at Mani about five years ago. For the very first time, he brought his show to New York and he chose to show right under the Brooklyn Bridge okay. with an amazing orchestra wow. and a great cast, including people like Tyler Mitchell and Erica Badu. And it was just to have, obviously, our usual cast of characters, but also brilliant designers from other parts of the world were, I think, just fashion is global today. So to have that mix was marvelous. And then, of course, it, it ended with the great... Tom Ford, who whenever he, he shows in New York, lifts all of us up. He does. He recently was on Table for Two, and he is he's an incredible man. And he is, he, he said on Table for Two, anyone over 30 shouldn't go out during the day. <laughs> that was his well, insight. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, if you look like Tom Ford, you can go out anytime. You can go out anytime you want. One of the things that you consistently do with me when you see me is you always ask about me. You asked about me when my family lost the business and was going through rough times. You asked about my family. You asked about me. You asked about the things I w was working on. You are so generous that way. And quite honestly, not a lot of people did. You know, it's weird how people don't want to, they don't sometimes really want to get real. And that always impressed me and it meant a lot to me. And so my question really is with, you know, having the job you do, which is the you know chief content officer for Condé Nast, you're so busy. How do you make time for friends to give advice to people? How does that come into your life in such a way? Well, thank you for for uh, saying that. I, I I really appreciate it. It's 
I'm so lucky that I have the platform that I do and it does put me in a position to, to help people and to connect people and I get a huge amount of pleasure whether it's working with my chiefs of content around the world or you or whoever it may be in, in learning about their lives and what they're thinking and what they're doing and if there is any way that one can be helpful I feel you know I had amazing people that helped me when I was starting out and I think it's it doesn't require anything but one's time and I think that's just so important to, to give when people are rushing so madly and and I also think particularly right now when things are so tough and we've all come out of COVID and the world is in the state that it that it's in that to, to make time to help and connect people if one one can is so important. I also think it's really, really important to be focused because you can't do everything and you can't help everyone. Yes. So you think about where you do have areas of expertise or you can put people in touch that will be meaningful. So I think being focused and being clear and also being transparent, people respond to that. I worked in my career with and for people that maybe haven't necessarily been that clear and it's incredibly frustrating mm -hmm. and I think as long as people know it's a yes or it's a no or I can help you or I'm really sorry I'd love to help you but I'm not able to is better than pretending or, or yes. faking and so that's what I tr try yeah. as much as possible to do because I have been at the other end where people have made promises or sort of not been clear on what they're saying or doing and it's it, it, you just waste everybody's time. I so respect that about you one of the things too that you are so committed to are the charities in your life and giving back and giving back. And you know, I can remember when you really enlisted all the for Amfar with Bono to raise money for AIDS, and you got you know everyone in New York really came out. And you and Tom recently um, created Common Thread mm -hmm. and also the Met Gala. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question to you is, you know, kind of tell me a little bit about Common Thread. And the Met Gala is so specific and it's so beautiful and it's so wonderful and, uh, and, it's, and it's privately funded and what you've done is so special. My question with, to you, what I've always wanted to know is really like, what are you protecting in that space? Because it's important to protect it. And I just... So well, that's an interesting question. On. I mean, obviously the more philanthropic uh, endeavors that I take on are things that I feel very personally connected to. And if we are start with something like the initiative of Common Thread that actually was an extension of an initiative that Vogue and the CFDA started after 9-11 mm -hmm. which was called the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. It was such a, an extraordinary time and I think all of us were lost and, and didn't know what to do and how one could be helpful and I think it comes back to the idea of being focused. I saw all the young people in my office really struggling and I saw all the young designers because it, it happened, you probably no reason for you to remember this, but it happened uh, during the first day of uh, New York Fashion. Um, fashion Week, mm -hmm. and so as a result, no one was able to show, obviously, and many young designers lost their deposits. And we, over the following weeks, we got so many calls saying, "What should we do? We've lost everything." And what we did was we put together a fashion show for all the young designers. And Car uh, Carolina Herrera was so generous; she gave us our her showroom. We invited some members of the press. We invited some TV stations, and we got quite a bit of press around it and out of that I realized 
how hand-to-mouth the life of a young designer in New York was and we launched something called the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. And we, uh, we pinpoint 10 designers every, every year that we're gonna help and mentor and find the right mentor for long-term. And also we give them a certain amount of funding. So that's been in existence about 20 years now. And when COVID hit, if you think about the calls that we received, they on, a, on an average year, there are many, but they multiplied. So many people were struggling, didn't know what to do and, and how could we help them. So we decided to, to repurpose the fashion fund into a common thread. Okay. And we went out and we raised some money and the very first person that called me was Ralph Lauren. And he said, I hear you're raising money to support young American designers. And I, I said, yes, Ralph, that's right. And he said, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Just like that. I, and I burst into tears because oh, I was so moved <laughs> in that he called me personally and there was no questions about where was yeah. the money going. He just gave it to us. And so once that came out, we were able to raise a great deal more and, and the, the CFDA and, and Vogue put together a committee and we allocated a certain amount of money to, I can't remember now, but I think it was over a hundred designers that were really in need for different, different levels of grant, from small grants to large grants. Um, so it, it was about knowing that we could help, that this was an area that we had expertise in, that we were able to support not only support them financially, but put them in touch with relevant people that could help them. So we've now gone back to, to the Fashion Fund and actually we, we had a meeting just yesterday to talk about how the Condonas is much more global than we were a few years ago, how we could look at the Fashion Fund from a global perspective, having local chapters, but a global perspective. So that's one thing that I do that involves all the Vogue and all of the CFTA and, and now hopefully Vogue's around the world. And then I've obviously always been very committed to causes that work with uh, HIV. And um, during the HIV crisis, it was just extraordinary at the time how people just didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to support. And uh, it was something that obviously within our community was very much discussed, but many, many people didn't. And... The leader at the uh, CFDA at that time was Carolyn Rome, and she was incredible. And we got together as a group, Donna Karen and Ralph and Mark and Michael and Calvin, and we created something called Saint Sale, where it was like a big bazaar, and everybody came, and they created a booth, and they sold fashion, and it was open to the public, and we raised millions and, and yeah, millions, and it was also raised awareness. And, yes. So that has segued into now working with Michael on God's Love We Deliver, and obviously Michael has done such an incredible job broadening that, and delivers uh, meals to people with all kinds of different illnesses, not just HIV, and in yeah. fact at the dinner, which was just last week, they were talking about how they're doing so much work now with people that are suffering from mental illness mm -hmm. and have severe mental health issues, and can't leave the house or for whatever reasons they they, they need the food and, and it's, it's, the food of course is so important but it's even the people that just turn up every yeah. day mm -hmm. you know just having human it's the connection contacts yes. so, but I also work um, my ex-husband was chief of child psychiatry at Columbia and for many years his subject was working with young 
people who had suicidal uh, tendencies and were suffering from severe anxiety and depression. And about remember, 15 years ago, he and I started to raise money to create something called the Youth Anxiety Center, which operates between Columbia and Cornell, that supports research and treatment for young people that suffer from uh, those three illnesses, depression, anxiety, and, and in the severest cases from young people that are really concerned about them committing suicide. And obviously during COVID, that has become even yeah. more prevalent yes. and important. And you read, as I'm sure your listeners read, about how mental health has become such an issue among young people. So you know, those are three causes that I care about deeply and that I feel through personal experiences I can actually be helpful. Amazing. I mean, <laughs> here's a woman that is a yeah. person so busy and in between you're yeah. running a business. That just goes back to the idea of, of focus and obviously I get a huge amount of support and help from people in, in, in all those different yes. areas and I, I, I really want to emphasize how Michael is really the leader of God's Love. I'm, I'm there but he's the one that, that leads that with the Youth Anxiety Center and the Fashion Fund. Those are deeply personal. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Table for Two, where we are talking with Anna Winter about her great work with Common Thread and Amphar. We're going to get back into that, but also the Met Gala and why it's so much more than just a party. And then you asked me about the Met. I mean, and and the Met, well, that was because of Oscar. I mean, Oscar de Laurenta, who was my great friend and whose wife, Annette de Laurenta, is also a great personal friend. They called me a million years ago and said, would you ever consider helping the Costume Institute? And, you know, I had been aware of the Met and the work that they did when, when I was first living in New York and was a junior editor at New York Magazine. And I remember going to the Met when I was, was there with someone called Henry Post, who was my colleague at New York Magazine, who sadly died of, of AIDS and was certainly one of the reasons that I wanted to try and help at that, at that time. And, and just being awed by what Mrs. Freeland had done and it just seemed it was the most glamorous evening I'd ever been at. And um, I didn't go to the dinner, couldn't afford to go to the dinner. I was just at, at, at the cocktails with Henry, but we, we had a, an, an amazing time. And so when Annette and Oscar called me, after Mrs. Freeland uh, was no longer working with the museum, it, it sort of, there was no leadership uh, or there wasn't sure. as an involved leadership with a person with so much vision and asked me to, to see if I could help. I mean, I really, there was not a grand plan. I, I just did it because if Oscar called, you always said yes. And, uh, <laughs> and I really was very naive, I think. I didn't realize what I was stepping into and it just, became something that I felt more and more passionate about over the years and obviously it came more recently became so close with Andrew Bolton and, and so loved working with him and thrilled to support his creative vision and his mind and help put a spotlight on the amazing work he does at the Met and at the Met itself and it, it just grew over the years but I can't pretend that there was a grand plan or a grand strategy it, it just it grew I mean and it has been 25 years it's, it's not crazy. like it just happened yes. in a day it's sort of interesting because that's the organic truth of it you know, yes. when something has has a life of uh, its own I think what makes it such a spectacular night is it's organic it has grown into and it's actually you know one of the things that I don't think it gets enough credit for at least that I've read is it's it's an economic plus for the city. People come in, it, yeah. it's the, it, all these sort of ancillary it's pieces. A, yeah, it's almost become a, a week of celebration. Yes. I, I think what's really important to note is that the Costume Institute is its own department within the museum and everything that we raise over the year, and particularly, of course, during that, that one night, 
that is what supports it. We, we, yes. it, it supports its acquisitions budget, its operating costs, the cost of the exhibition. We are self-funded. Yes. So we receive no funding at all from the right, no, museum it's itself. So that is, is sometimes a, an important point that people don't necessarily realize. And of course, raising the money is so important and putting a spotlight on the exhibitions and I mean, bringing a much broader language of fashion to a broader public is incredibly important, but I do want to say that it's supporting somebody like Andrew, who, well, first of all, he's so much fun, but he's brilliant, and to watch how his mind starts to grapple with the subject of mm -hmm. an exhibition. I mean, I'm sure Brian talks to you a lot about this in, in his role, when you see a creative vision start to unfold and put together all the different pieces and watch the storytelling yeah. become a reality. Like right now we're, we're working on uh, the exhibition for May of 2023, which is looking at the enormous body of work that Karl Lagerfeld uh, produced over 55 years. And obviously a lot of people associate Karl with Chanel and with Fendi, but he also worked at Patou when he was in his 20s, he worked at Balmain, he worked at Chloe, he had his own world at Karl Lagerfeld, plus all these different collaborations. So it's this mammoth body of amazing work. And, and how do you focus that into an exhibition that the visitors Very will understand? Sure. And seeing him find that through line, it was really interesting. We just had the press conference in Paris and we had it at Karl's own library and studio which really if you think about Carl you think about sketching and you think about books and you think about tactile things like paper and pen and it, this amazing library is like wall to wall thousands and thousands of books and Carl when he would he, he was a great book giver but he would never send you one copy he would send you like 10 copies and I would, of the same book, and I would say to him, oh, why are you sending me 10 copies? He said, well, don't you have 10 libraries? And no, like he had 10 libraries all over the world, but those, not many of us do that. When Andrew was talking about how he had really channeled Carl's vision and mind, he talked about a line of beauty from Hogarth and he talked about how he saw all these different lines running through Carl's work whether it was the serpentine line or the classical line and that came to him from watching a little video of Carl actually sketching and seeing Carl draw these sort of lines again and again and then when you look at it and you see that line running through all of his work so he took 55 years of work and he put it into wow. a way that you and I can actually understand the genius of what Carl was doing, but how he would go back again and again to the same look, the same ideas. And in a way, that's why Carl at Chanel, I think, was always so interesting because he was contained in a way that he wasn't at some of the other places that he worked at by a vocabulary mm -hmm. of what Chanel stood for. Sure. Wow. So when Andrew's, like, when someone identifies that line, do you just, when they present it, do you 
feel it viscerally and say, yeah. oh, well, now I, now I understand what the ex <laughs> right. exhibition can be. And it's, it's like, how can these enormous subjects be boiled down into a thought process that everybody can understand? And I always say to Andrew, when he comes up with these ideas, like if I don't get it in 60 seconds, I'm the public, no one will get it. And sometimes, you know, that very deep intellectual mind will come up with an idea and I'm always trying to help him think about how you can boil it down to an idea that the general public will understand and want to go and see. Yep. It's, and you also, you know, what you're doing is, I, I think, you're, you know, fashion tells the story of life and history. Well, it's a global language. Yes. And that is what is so amazing about those exhibitions. And right, really, the turning point was the McQueen show. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was just this extraordinary moment when he, he died through such tragic circumstances. And Andrew, and, and he was working at that time with Harold Coder as his co-curator, came and said, we, we, we want to do this exhibition. and. I think there was an interest in, in McQueen because of his life and how he had unfortunately left us. And then the exhibition was brilliant mm. and the, the visual side of the exhibition was, was brilliant. I mean, it, it just brought together all of the designer's thought processes and, and, and how he looked at costume and how he looked at the world. And then of course, the Princess of Wales was married in a McQueen and that was the Monday before the exhibition opened. So there were all these forces fueling into this heightened public interest. But we had no idea that it was going to unleash this public interest in this mm -hmm. exhibition. I mean, there were lines outside the museum every night. And then the last weekend, Andrew and I decided we would go and sign catalogs that night because it was going to be open till midnight. It was open till midnight the last weekend. And it was so moving to be there that evening that we were there because people stood in line six, seven, eight hours to see this show. And, and I remember there was one lady that came up and uh, I mean, I always say, where do you come from? And the people were coming from Australia and Korea and from all over the world. And there was one lady that came up and she, she was from the South. And she said, I've stood in line three times to see this exhibition. And this time I stood in line uh, for six hours and I would do it all over again. And she must have been in her 80s. Wow. And then you think, this is why you're doing it. Right. You know, it was, it was Great just so affirmation. emotional and moving. And there were so many stories like that. I know we get a lot of attention around the party, but we do it because of the work. Right. I will say that I've had the good fortune of going to the party and I seemingly always get the dress wrong. I think it's because I'm married to Brian Lord, who never lets me. I'll tell you now. Fully realize. Uh, after we had lunch. After I'll we had lunch. Okay, okay, so I have so some fun planning. <laughs> I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? 
That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the table, everyone. I hope that you are enjoying our conversation with Anna Winter. I know I am. And while I could talk about the Met Gala all afternoon, I've got one question that's been pressing. What's going on with men's fashion today? So Anna, after watching the now-released David Bowie documentary, his love of fashion and the expression of his music through his clothes, Mm -hmm. Bowie was androgynous, and we find ourselves in a time where men's fashion has shifted with the likes of Harry Styles, queer men combining tuxedos with ball gowns, jewelry. What is happening in men's fashion? Well, it's so, I mean, obviously Bowie was so ahead of his time and what might have been a little bit shocking at that moment is the norm now. Mm -hmm. And I think everything is so interconnected and I think the fashion industry in terms of inclusivity has been really ahead of the game the way that they embrace all genders and are not being confined by rules or traditions Uh, it's so exciting but it's so great and we have designers like Tom Brown that have been really ahead of the curve in, in that way or you know going back to more of Bowie's generation 
Jean-Paul Gaultier. And I see it in the office. You know, I, I remember many years ago, we used to have a young man in the office that would wear dresses and um, high heels. And we were fine with it at Vogue, but uh, maybe other departments would, would raise an eyebrow or two. Now, nobody even yeah. thinks about it. It's just it's accepted, amazing. it's normal. And how great is that? Everyone ought to be able to express their own identity, their own personality, and that's one of the great pleasures and joys about working in fashion is that fashion is about self-expression yes. and this is who I am. And maybe you're that one day and you're something else the next. And I think because fashion has such this huge platform now through social media or events like the Met Gala or the Oscars or whatever it may be, although the Oscars could maybe be a little bit more experimental in my, in my view. I, I do think I that- <laughs> I I do think that fashion is a platform where people love to express themselves. Yeah. And, and how wonderful is that? It is amazing. Um, when you, and I find myself, and for some reason I, I'm in a color that I know you don't really love, which is all that black. Is so not true. I love black. It's just not black all day, every day. <laughs> but I do it's... think what's so exciting is, um, and I dressed every day in COVID. Like Brian would be in his office. He would hear like the clickety click of my shoes and he'd be like, where are you going? And I'm like, well, just down, down to the kitchen. To, yeah. down to the kitchen. Mm -hmm. But it was very important for me to sort of put together what I wanted to wear because that actually set the tone for my day. It's respect, right. self-respect. Yeah. Self-respect, so mm -hmm. I love that. And to others. Right, and to others, mm -hmm. how you present yourself, exactly. Are you gonna make super chic in your, I don't know, in your track pants or whatever it may be. It doesn't mean that you have to be in a suit. Right. It's just. Do I, you plan your look the night before or are you that, no, when you wake up, no, it's how no, you're it's feeling. It's like, it's more, I'm a little bit, I'm not, I'm not that organized. <laughs> I mean, yeah. because you look I, very... I, thank you, but I, you know, I like to have a few things you wear over and over right. and over. And I think particularly now when we're all so focused on climate and sustainability, the, the idea that fashion is disposable is not something that, uh, that anyone should be thinking about. You should be thinking about things that can last. And I keep talking to a lot of the, 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 the designers about the idea of... Why do you not have it within your stores vintage and vintage that is yours mm -hmm. and that you can talk to your customers well, about right. why, you know, you're investing this amount in a jacket or a bag or whatever it may be, but it lasts and, and, and it becomes, you know, part of your personal wardrobe and things that you might give to your, your children or that you will wear over and over, but that this idea that you, you might want to let things go, why? Keep them, invest in them, wear them over and over, mix them in with new things. So I think recycling, rethinking your wardrobe and going back to things that you have owned for many years is so important. I agree. I always feel too with um, things that I have, there comes a time where you don't really wear it or there might be something I absolutely love and I acquire knowing that it's just not the moment for it yet. Mm -hmm. And then all it's of a sudden- It's time will come. It's time will come, exactly. <laughs> it's time will come. Well, you know, I also find in regard to men's fashion, I find it really interesting and, and you could speak to how fashion works. The conflict of the conservative moment we're in with people's rights being taken away. And yet fashion is, men's fashion is, you know, now of the nature of this sort of androgynous way. And I think of like when women left the 50s and went into the 60s and everything got shorter. How does fashion play 
in in line with well, I think the times. What we've been looking at is this idea that what you wear, how you look, how you present yourself doesn't have to be perfect and fake. It, you know, like it's sort of airbrush out of all recognition that your clothes, how you wear, how you present yourself, it's better to look authentic and real and slightly imperfect because the world that's is not perfect mm -hmm. and i i feel like a lot of the more interesting collections that we just looked at in in, in during the month of shows reflected that like maybe maybe some of the clothes were a little bit wrinkled or there were unfinished threads but there was a focus also on quality and craftsmanship and but it, it was it's not a perfect world mm -hmm. and i felt the more interesting designers. They were optimistic collections. They were, many of them were colorful, but they weren't like perfect. They mm -hmm. weren't presenting to the world as I'm perfect. Right. It was sort of more vulnerable and real and to the heart, if that makes sense. It does yeah. make sense. I love that. And when you see something like that, what does it feel like to you when you go, oh, okay, this is where we're going this season well at this moment in time i think everything right now is not about a season or a month it's like how do you create cultural moments and how can you create content that exists across multiple platforms and you're talking to audiences that uh, read your content in many different ways whether they're looking at what we've create through social media or through video or through an event or through print or through one's philanthropic efforts in you know, multiple different ways. Yeah. So how incredible is that? Yeah. That you have all these different uh, paths to take and pull together, but remember that you need a different way of talking to those audiences depending on the platform. So we're talking about, okay, the world's a mess, it's imperfect, fashion is reflecting that, this is a cultural moment. How do we talk to our audiences with our enormous reach globally across all of our different platforms to talk about that, to make them feel connected? And the other thing is you have to remember that you need to bring your audiences with you. So we just did a show in September called Vogue World because I felt very, very much that we could bring something to the idea of what a show could be. I've seen a lot of fashion shows. <laughs> uh, that would be a little different for um, an audience that would show kind of what was happening. I wanted it to be very much reflect what I saw happening in New York at that time and a street culture that I saw and that how could we blow this out across video and social media and bring our audiences in, bring our Vogue club members in, bring, bring it through live streaming. So we did a show at the beginning of a fashion show called Vogue World New York, where we took over a whole street in the uh, meatpacking district. And we had, it's like what, what kind of gave me the idea was when walking to Washington Square in the morning, or coming back and you know if you go there in the daylight in the summer it's very different from when you go there at night but I wanted to bring in this idea uh, Central Park at the weekend where you see people on bicycles you yes. see families you, you you see everyone doing different kind of sport 
you know, everybody is wearing something different. So this idea of this incredible mix that you see in New York. So we had this parade, it was like dancers and models and every now and again you would see a celebrity, you know, was that Misha Barishnikov? Yes, it was, you know, <laughs> uh, it was this amazing cultural mix and it was very joyous yeah. and it created that cultural yeah. moment across all of our platforms but it wasn't a traditional idea of content like it's got to be a cover story or it's got to be the Met it was it was right. a different approach and I think that's how we all have to think about our content right now yeah. is like what is meaningful to your world and how can you create a moment that people are going to relate to and I think the the reason people liked it so much is that it felt very real and very authentic. It didn't feel too drenched in celebrity. It didn't feel unattainable. It, it felt joyous and hopeful. And we ended, we started with Serena. You know, she opened the runway and we ended with Little Nas. So where there, there were those celebrity moments, but it it also reflected a moment that we we knew was happening in New York, whether yeah. it was cinema or theater or dance. I think, you know, authenticity is really the yeah. key, the key and to it all. It's the authenticity yeah. that people just are responding to what they want to yeah. see on their platforms. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So this brings me, Miss Winter, what, we, what you referenced earlier was your love of theater. and. I know you love theater. You do more for theater in New York than most realize. You place theater actors in vogue way before they are celebrities, hence marketing them and therefore positioning theater in a very important role. There's no other magazine that does that. And B, your daughter loves uh, theater and works in theater, yes. and it's it's a family it's a family it's affair. It's a family thing. It's well, family that, thing. that really comes from from my dad, who was a, a Fleet Street editor in, in London, and we grew up going to the theater. He launched something called the Evening Standard Theater Awards. He was the editor of the Evening Standard for many many years, and it, it just was a way of life in our family. And we had playwrights in the house, we had journalists in the house. It was just an extension of culture. And I think that the British particularly have a deep, deep love of the theater, whether it's what we're taught, our Shakespeare that we're taught at school, what, whatever it may be, but it, it, and it's much more accessible, to be honest, mm -hmm. in London than it, than it is sadly uh, here in New York. I really have to credit my dad and, and my mother loved the theatre as well. I remember being taken as a, as a young girl to Stratford-on-Avon to see A Midsummer Night's Dream. And my, my mother told me many years later that I had this vision of Tatiana being this lovely, young, wonderful uh, girl. And she said, actually, was she was probably pushing 60, but, you know, as, as an eight-year-old, she there was just a romance to it that always stays, stays with you and going to see Shakespeare in the Park or Peter Pan. I don't know. They, they, they just stay with you because there's mm -hmm. something about being in the room, having the physical contact. And I talk to my, as I'm sure you do, your actor friends. I mean, they go back to the theater again and again because yes. there's something about having that audience response uh, that is very different from... And it's not that I don't like film, I love film, but it's a different experience. Yes. It, you use a great word that I think describes you in what is also sort of all aspects of your life, which is romance. Yeah. And 
that you see the romance in New York, you see the romance in the theater, you see the romance in everything. Now that I'm really looking at you, the romance of the life that you create for all of us, it's amazing. Well, thank you. It really you're, is. You're very, very kind of, and I've just been incredibly lucky and incredibly lucky in my family and the people that have helped me and the teams that I have working with me and the worlds that I have learned to, to know. And I do, I really consider myself so fortunate yeah. and that I had that experience as a, as a young girl, seeing how excited my dad was by journalism and how important the truth was to mm -hmm. him. And, and I, my, my brother is, uh, political editor, di diplomatic editor on, on The Guardian. My, my sister-in-law is a political writer. And my nieces and nephews, the ones that are old enough, work in the theater. My daughter works in, the, in, yes. in theater. My son, of course, is an amazing doctor, but he works in <laughs> mental health. So yep. somehow everything remains. That's sort of very unique. I mean, in Connection. your father being such an influence because you're in the family business. Going back to your word, romance. I mean, going to visit him as a as a child in Fleet Street and seeing those old printing presses yes. and the guys, I mean, it was just like right out of a movie with the visors <laughs> and, you know, they had to get, hold the presses, all that stuff. I grew up with that. And the man that he worked for calling him at four o'clock in the morning because it was breaking news. And for some reason, the phone was in my bedroom. So I would be the one that would go upstairs and tell him such and such as, has happened. So, I mean, that that stays with you. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's so exciting. So you bring up politics and I've had such good fortune to have dinner with you, with Brian, where we get to be real and we just can talk. And I'm always struck by your up-to-the-second knowledge of political races and candidates. And we're not here to talk about candidates. But being English, you're da you know, damned. It's a big deal. Why are you so committed to our democracy? And where does that come from? Well, I think it goes back to growing up with journalism and seeing my, my father and the people that we had frequently in-house, mostly journalists, being so committed and... The political landscape reflects our times. It reflects our, our, our culture. And I, you know, I was very lucky in that my, my family instilled values in all of us. You know, you can't live your, your life under the shadow, but I do think you are shaped by your upbringing. I'm sure you, you must Certainly. feel that and yes. what you're exposed to. And politics was just what was discussed at, at home. And I find what's happening right now so in many ways so deeply disturbing to see how polarizing her politics have become and how truth has not uh, seems to be meaningless in the eyes of, of many and so anything that all of us can do in our own small ways to help reshape that conversation i think for the sake of our, our children our grandchildren and generations to come As our lunch today with Anna comes to a close, I want to thank all of you for pulling up a chair. I know Anna has to get back to work, so there's just one little question I have for her. I guess, Anna, as we sort of wrap it up, what brings you joy? My children, my children, my grandchildren. I mean, there's, in the end, it's, um, I think it's family. It's family, obviously it's friends. I mean, I, I love 
I love my work. I, I love the work I do with Andrew at the museum. Obviously, that's super important to me. But you know, in the end, it, it's 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 your it's your family. And then on a more simplistic and less complicated, you know, I love my gardens. You know, I. I love the joy of watching a great tennis match so i love a great performance i mean i I'm, i have so much respect when i see people who are completely dedicated to what they do and do it extremely well i mean i i'm asked a lot about someone like roger federer who's been a friend of mine for so many years and and watching Roger play on the court with so much grace and elegance and style and talent. You know, that is, to me, that that's seeing someone who is the best at what they do, that that's joy. And if I can help, whether it's tennis or politics or theater or mental health or any of the things that we've been having this wonderful discussion about, if I can help in any way, put any kind of a spotlight on, on that, then that certainly gives me joy. Your description of Roger Federer, who I also agree, is a description of yourself. Oh, wow. You are elegant, you are filled with grace, you are incredibly wise and generous, and I can't thank you enough for pulling up a chair today and having lunch with me. It means everything oh, to me. Thank you, Bruce. You've been so kind and generous to me, and I so appreciate it. Table for Two with Bruce Bozzi is produced by iHeartRadio, 737 Park, and Airmail. Our executive producers are Bruce Bozzi, Jonathan Haas-Dressler, and Nathan King. Table for Two is edited and written by Tina Mullen and researched and written by Bridget Arsenault. Our sound engineers are Emile B. Klein, Paul Bowman, and Alyssa Midgaff. Table for Two's LA production team is Danielle Romo and Lorraine Virez. Our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our talent booking is by Jane Sarkin. Special thanks to Amy Sugarman, Uni Scher, Kevin Uvain, Bobby Bauer, Allison Cantor-Graber, and Jody Williams, Rita Sodi, and the team at Via Corota in Manhattan's West Village. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. 
Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.